are shadows and some that are the real substance. And, and would we not be distracted by the shadow? And as absurd as it seems to look at the shadow um, of a building, how much more absurd would it be to look at the shadow of Jesus? And yet for many of us, we have spent years of our life, if not a lot of our life, focusing on the shadow rather than on Jesus. And so would we be able to see it this morning with kind of the same level of absurdity, that our eyes should be drawn to the right thing, not to the wrong thing. We're going to pick up this morning in verse 16 of chapter 2. And you'll notice, um, if if you're there and looking at it, it starts with therefore, right? And, And therefore always points us backwards as to what has come prior to this. And so we're being reminded this morning that that the book of Colossians is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he hasn't planted, right? But a church in Colossae in this kind of waning, significant community that he is ministering to them that they would have read this in one hall, right? Like we're taking time to break it down week by week, but they would have heard it all. And so the therefore that we're going to get into this morning really takes us back to chapter 1. And chapter 1 was just big Jesus, right? Harmon even read some of that this morning, was lift your eyes and look at the significance and the bigness of who Jesus is, right? That you need to be rooted in that and anchored in that. In the beginning of chapter 2, in in verses 1 through 5, we had a reminder that it's in Jesus that we find the fullness of wisdom, that we find treasure, and there's a warning not to be distracted by false teachers, not to be um, distracted by those who would want to lead you away from glimpsing Jesus, that He is everything, right, that we need. Then we see in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2, therefore, so right, because of the bigness of Jesus in chapter 1, there's a warning in the first five verses. He then says in verse 6, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, writing to the church, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And then the rest of chapter 2, 8 through 15 there, he just shows the sufficiency of Jesus. Like that Jesus is everything that we need. Right? That it's his death that rescues us. That he's taken us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Right? It's this Jesus is sufficient and in him you have fullness. Like there's no spiritual experience beyond him. That leads us up now to verse 16. Because of all of that, therefore, okay? Therefore. Let's pick up and read. Therefore, let no one pass a judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that are to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what Paul has done thus far in Colossians is really tried to anchor and root us deep into the significance of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. right? And He's alluded all along, hey church, I'm, I'm commending you, but there is some risk. There is a warning that there's some false teaching that's emerging in your city. And so I want you to be mindful of it. And really, we're going to get into kind of the meat of that this morning. That Paul doesn't name the false teachers. He doesn't name exactly what system it is they're teaching. But he gives some direction, some guidance, and some pastoral leadership to the church and how to handle it. And he begins in verse 16. So don't let anyone pass a judgment on you. All right. So he's saying, listen, there are going to be those from without of the church, false teachers, who are going to want to pass a judgment on you. He says, I don't want you to, don't let them do that. They're going to try to do it in two regards. They're going to pass a judgment in regards of what you eat and drink, and second, in um, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, basically holidays. So they're going to judge you based on what you eat and drink and based on how you celebrate. And he says, So why? Like, why are they going to pass a judgment in these two regards that feel a little strange? maybe to us this morning. And he immediately gives them the answer in verse 17. He's like, because these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. Listen to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. He talks about this language of shadow as well. He's describing the priestly system. And in verse 5 of chapter 8, he says this, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, meaning the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain at Mount Sinai. You look over to chapter 10, verse 1. He says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What we see is that there's language in the New Testament that's looking back at the system of the Old Testament and saying, listen, that that was foreshadowing something. It was looking forward to something else, something that felt hidden, something that felt removed a little bit, that they're waiting to see clarity, and that those things are a shadow. We see in 1 Chronicles 23 and Ezekiel 45 and Hosea 12 in different places that this, the language of festivals, new moons, and Sabbath was, was, a, was just a line that you would see often. And so what Paul is doing is, is he's tying us back somewhat into Judaism, but what, is, what has happened here in Colossae is that they're creating their own religion some, to some extent. They're taking elements of different teachings, of different religions, and it, it's syncretism, right? Where they're adding all of these things together to make, make one, to make a whole. And so he's saying, listen, people are judging you because you're not following the same holidays, the same rituals, the same things that we once did. He's saying, church, be reminded, these were a shadow. They were foreshadowing something better that was to come. 
the festivals that the, the Jews would have celebrated, right, would have been this festive time to celebrate, but that they were really honestly looking forward to a person, that we're not just celebrating an idea, that we want to celebrate a person. We now know that's Jesus, right? That the sacrifice, the sacrifice system was meant to say, hey, there's a need for atonement, that blood needs to be spilled for life, right? That there is brokenness and sin and rebellion, that we are the enemies of God, and that death is required. And the sacrificial system was this constant kind of bloody reminder that we have an issue and that we need redemption. The priesthood, right, was this shadow of something that was to come, this reminder that we need people to intercede on our behalf. But as they're interceding on our behalf, right, they, they're even a little bit removed and can't quite get to God in the way that we feel desperately that we need to. The temple, right, was this reminder that God would dwell among His people, and yet He's there and we can't get close enough, right, because of the sacrificial system, because of the priestly system, because of the holiness of the situation. That circumcision was a painful and bloody way to enter into covenant, into relationship with God. Right, that the Sabbath was a reminder that we need rest, and food, why it would be talked about in places like Leviticus 11 and 23 of how it could defile us, right? This reminder that, that we are not holy, that we are separate from God, that we could be defiled. And yet, Jesus has been told or talked about so far in this letter saying He is the hidden message revealed. Like that thing that we were meaning to understand. He's not the shadow of it. He's the substance of it. Listen to how Paul writes this. There are these, referring to food, to drink, to festivals, to new moons, to Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying, don't look at the shadow. Don't try to figure out the nuance of the shadow. Jesus is here. Like, look at Him. And so, yes, the temple was a place where God dwelled. Now we have God dwelling among us. Right? The sacrificial system was a reminder that we needed an atoning sacrifice the cross was our atoning sacrifice. Right? It's pointing to a bigger and greater reality. That Sabbath was meant for rest. And Jesus comes to give us true soul rest. To lead us into the promised land once and for all. That's why in Mark 7, He'll talk about food and say, listen, y'all want to talk about what goes into the mouth and comes out of the body? It's what defiles you? That's not what defiles you. It's what comes out of the heart. You're right that we're defiled, but it's not based on food. It's based on your motives and your actions and your rejection of the Lord, your sin. You are defiled and you need, right? And so he, he, he calls all things clean. That the priesthood was Jesus, right? Going to the Father on our behalf, atoning for us, giving us access back to the Father, bringing us along with Him. The cross was the circumcision, right? Where through a bloody, painful ordeal, right, we are brought right with God. We are entering into covenant and relationship with Him. And so in all of this, he's saying, listen, there's a tendency to want to, to consider and to focus on the shadow. It's a little confusing, right? It's a little bit, I'm not sure what's being, right? It's, it's laying in bed at night and going, I know that's a coat hanger. 
doesn't feel like a coat hanger anymore, right? So as a kid, I can remember laying in the room that I slept in every night and knowing it really well. And then all of a sudden, that room becomes like a house of horrors, right? Because you're like, all these things, and like mentally, I know what's there. And yet now I, I, and so, right, my strategy to that was, if I run fast, I can make it to my folks' room. And as long as I don't stop, I'll make it, right? Like, you can't look back, you just got to run. And the goal was to run through the house and lay beside their bed, right? Because then you're safe. And the next morning you're going, there was nothing terrifying here, right? Like, I know that. And then you can lay in bed and psych yourself out, right? He's saying, like, don't focus on the shadow. Focus on the revealed substance. It is the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Put your eyes on Him. Taste and see that He's good, that He's not hidden. Right? So that He is our atonement. He is our high priest. He is our tabernacle. He has provided real rest. And even with the festivals, I'll just go over a couple of them. There was the Feast of First Fruits, right? Where Where Israel would have celebrated God's provision. Right, that He has, has provided and taken care of us. And it would have been celebrated right on the day that Jesus resurrected. Right, that He's the first fruits from the dead. God has provided peace with us and Him. He has provided the hope of eternity through the first fruits of Jesus' resurrection. Right, so that Israel was celebrating God's provision for something they weren't quite sure what it was. And so they would have celebrated um, the provision of crops and food and health and peace, all of these things, not knowing that what they were ultimately going to be celebrating was that God has provided peace with him. has provided rest and hope and joy in the person and the work of Jesus. A second one would have been the Day of Atonement, right, where there was this idea of a need that we have sin that we cannot atone for. So it's Jesus who is our atoning sacrifice. You can go through all the feasts and festivals and find how Jesus is the substance of the shadow that was cast. The second thing, though, he's going to tell them is, he's, listen, I don't want you to be judged by what you eat or drink or what you celebrate. He also tells them, I don't want you to be disqualified. Look at verse 18. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So he's saying, one, they're going to want to judge you, and two, the false teachers are going to want to say you're not qualified, like you, you don't have enough spirituality. And he begins to describe them. And he says, listen, they're going to be all about denial of self, asceticism, like holding things back from themselves, right, to show how spiritual they are. I don't need the things of the world because look how godly I am, Right? That I can, I can, I'm above the things of the world. I'm above the body. I'm above enjoyment. I'm a, like, I'm above those things. It's like they're not, they're not showing that they're spiritual. They're showing that they're arrogant. They're not humble. They're proud. Then they're going to go on about the worship of angels. And so this was really a twofold thing. One was there was the idea that angels um, were working in a way as an intermediate intermediary of God. And so we're going to kind of worship them as above us and below God. So it's not, right, we're going to, we, we think we can worship God and angels. But they were also saying our worship has been elevated to that alongside of angels. Like your worship, it's cute. 
Mine is heavenly, right? This kind of idea that they are elevating themselves above others. And then they're talking, they're being puffed up without reason, right, by their sensuous mind going on in details about vision. So what they're doing is they're saying, I am more spiritual than you. Look at what I don't need when it comes to the body, right? Look at how, look at the, the visions in, in, the, in my heavenly worship that's, that's more than yours. And in this, they're saying, Jesus isn't sufficient. He's not in the fullness. You need the experiences that we have, not what Jesus has offered. And they're looking to create two classes. And he says, listen, you're not disqualified, church. You're not disqualified, and don't let them judge you. Jesus is the fullness. He is sufficient, and they can babble on about those things, but they're not legitimate. Listen, angels are a real thing. who really do minister. Visions are a real thing. right? Like, he's not saying that these things do not happen, but he says as soon as you begin to elevate them above the, the teachings of Jesus, that you are now leaving Jesus behind. Listen to what he says. They're no longer holding fast, in verse 19, to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is what? From God. He's like, they're going to babble on about spiritual things. And so church, it's a good reminder for us this morning that just because um, a teacher or a philosophy or a system of thinking mentions Jesus and can quote some scripture, it doesn't mean it's from God. Right, that there are things that can be elevated spiritually right, that are actually removing themselves from the church or removing themselves from the head, which is Jesus. And if we remove ourselves from the head, there is no growth. There's no growth that's godly, beneficial, or good. Remember his prayer early in chapter 2 was this to the church, I want you to be knit together. I want you to be knit together so that you will grow together to the fullness of the wisdom, the treasure, the knowledge of Jesus, so that you can withstand false teaching. And what he's saying here is the false teachers are removing themselves from the head, right? And as they do that, they're still going to claim the head, they're just not connected to it. And so there will be no gospel growth. There will be no spiritual growth that is beneficial or good or from the Lord. And church, there's a whole industry built on this right now, where people claim... Um, non-verifiable experiences, right? And then teach based off of that, right? So they teach things that don't come from Scripture, but they claim Jesus in the midst of it. We want growth that is connected to Jesus. We want growth that's connected, right, to Him. He's saying Jesus is sufficient. And so don't allow someone's experience to disqualify you from the fact that you know Him, that He is sufficient for you. And He may do miraculous things, right? But but that you have enough in Jesus. He is sufficient. So the question then maybe this morning is this, why is it important? Like, why is Paul taking the time as he writes to this church to say, I don't want you to be judged, I don't want you to be disqualified in the midst of a church that right now is really pretty healthy. Like, they have not been super infiltrated by this false teaching. So why spend the time to do this? Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
Here's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, if we go back to verses 8 through 15, that Jesus is sufficient, that his death is what we needed, that he's taken us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, right? That he's, he's canceled our debt. He's nailed it to the cross. Like that we are free because of Jesus. He says, if you've died, like that there is no spiritual power above him. He is one and he has put to shame all spiritual powers that are underneath him. Like if that's what you have, then why are you going back now and talking about food and drink and holidays and judgment? He's like, why are you re-enslaving yourself to religion? Right? Religion is the idea of how do we get to God? Like, how do I get to Him? Right? Where Christianity is that God says, you can't get to me, I'm coming for you. I'll make a way. Through the, the perfect life, when yours wasn't. Through an obedient death of an innocent when you're guilty. And through power over sin and death and Satan and resurrection. Says I've made the way. Trust that it is sufficient. Religion says, I want to be better. Right? Like I want to be better than other people. And it gives me a way to do that. And I'm going to get to God in the meantime, but I want to be better than others. Listen, there is an appeal of self-made religion. Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. What it does is it takes something that's familiar and it twists it. And it puts the control back in your hands. And it begins to condition us. Listen, as we parent kids and grandkids and neighborhood kids, right? as we are engaged with them, we have to balance. We're teaching morality. like There's a right way to be in society. And that morality doesn't save you. Right? Like those are twin tensions that are difficult. Because you can look at someone who's really good, and that doesn't mean they know Jesus. Right? And so we're trying to balance. Morality isn't necessary. It is important. We should look like God. And yet it's our ability to do that isn't what rescues and redeems us. And so, right, we can take things that are cultural, that are familiar, that are religious, and we can just begin to become conditioned to it. And when we're conditioned to it, it feels like that's what we should be doing. Let me give you an example of this. So I grew up right in, here in the Bible Belt where you don't wear a hat to church, right? And if you're wearing a hat right now, I, this is going to go in your favor, right? So don't take it off. All right. So, right? As you're, as I, and so I remember walking into places where adults would literally not say a word to me, but they would just knock my hat off as a kid. Right? And then, like, shame me for having had a hat on in the first place. Some of you are saying, well, I am that guy. <laughs> right? Others have said you've had that experience. Right? And so, right, there is nothing about whether you can wear a hat or not in church and scripture. Right? Right? That's, that's not an issue. But we, we began to make that a cultural thing of politeness, right? And of goodness and kindness and respect for your, your host. And then we begin to bring that into the church. And so we've made it this thing that actually isn't religious, and we've made it quite religious, right? To the point, I would love to wear my hat when I'm preaching, and I cannot bring myself to do it. I'm so conditioned by that. And so when last year during COVID, when we were doing video sermons for a while, I wore my hat, right? Like that was like, my gosh, like, right? And, and people commented on the fact, hey, you had your hat on during that. Can, I can't do it here, Right? And, and, and so there's nothing right, sinful or not about that, but I was conditioned into something 
It feels really familiar, right? And so then you're like, I know it's not true, and yet I'm still kind of bound to it. And so what Paul is saying is many of you have been in religious systems that are not gospel-driven, right? That have rules and regulations and expectations, and you are still really drawn to them because they feel familiar. And they feel comfortable, and guess what? You can control them a little bit. And so then that begins to really build up our own pride and our own heart that says, I can control my spirituality. I can control my morality. And it begins to remove the sovereignty of God from the situation. Here's the fact is, is most of us, we really like rules. We just want to be the creator of them. Right? Because we are able to create a system that makes us look good. And so if you're a person that's always polite to waiters, right, and you would never offend a waiter, then you can be really judgy on those who, like, make a scene, right? <laughs> never do that. Right? But if you like the speed, right, that's just not a rule anymore, right? Like, you, you're able to remove, that's not a moral thing, like, they shouldn't make us have a speed limit, right? Like, you can then begin to justify it. And so what we do is we love to create self-made morality and religious rules. And most of us would never go to the point of saying, right, that this somehow makes me right with God or not. But we have built a system where we feel proud of where we're better than others. And if we're, we're somewhere where we're less than, don't judge me. Right? Like that's, that is naturally in our heart to do these things. In small ways, in significant ways, in silly ways, in serious ways, right? It's why for most Muslims, the idea of there not being a rule for every period, every situation, every conversation, everything in life, I have to follow the Spirit of God, feels terrifying. Because they have a system that's been created where they know what to do and how to respond in every situation it has been given for them. And so you can kind of shortchange the heart in the mind, and I'm either being obedient or I'm being disobedient. And yet the Spirit of God says, hey, there's, right, I want you to follow me. And there are times where, right, I want you to speak, as Proverbs would say. And there are times where you need to be silent. Right, like there's wisdom involved, and obedience involved, and faith involved. And so legalism is built on pride about boasting, about control, about self-reliance. And the grace of the gospel undermines legalism. Because then I can't control, and I can't judge, and I don't get to feel superior. And so grace it then becomes offensive to me, because you're saying, well, I know that I, I, I'm saved, right? You're going to save them? Really? I'm so much better than them. And you're going to put us on equal playing field? Where's my just rewards? And so... Grace and the gospel becomes offensive to the religious person, to the moral person, because they feel like they're getting cheated, because they're unaware of their own need. The progressive, right, also has built a system that says, I'll decide what's best for me. And grace undermines it, because it says, like, someone else is in control and you're in need of rescue. So it takes the familiar and it conditions us. It, it, we love rules. 23 again. They indeed have an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom. You're never going to really shame someone who's super moral. You're never going to go, oh, you're too good. You're too moral. You have too much integrity. 
And what that can do, though, if we're not dependent and trusting that Jesus is the one that's transforming us, is it's building us up as, yes, I am. You should all be more like me. And some of you are going, man, I was always the right, I was never a legalist. I, I was. Like, I like the humble brag of someone complimenting me because I, like, I, I would never compliment myself. So I'm going to make sure you see what I've done so that you can compliment me and I can feed off that self-worship. And it, it's, it's insidious. And what Paul is warning them is there's going to be those who are going to come in and they're going to, they're going to come in with spirituality and make you think there's something you can do to own your salvation, to control it, to gain more grace and more favor from God, and you can feel superior and above others. Right? It's why Jesus in Matthew 6 warns, hey, don't be like those who fast, and then they make themselves look like they fasted, and they go out to be like, do you notice that I'm fasting? He's like, they just got their reward. That was it. They got it. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, listen, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. Right? It's why in Mark 7, Jesus says, you think it's the food that defiles you. I'm telling you, it's not the food. It's who you are. Well, who you are and what comes out of you is what defiles you. You need a new heart. You need redemption. You need to be a new creation. You need rescue. You need salvation. And so what he's saying is, listen, you can control the outside and how people look, and you're not fooling God. It's of no value, although it has an appearance of value. Because it's not transforming you internally. It's only transforming the external. It's why Jesus could look at the Pharisees and say, listen, you're whitewashed tombs. Beautiful to look at, dead on the inside. Not enough. And so what it does is it takes the power of God an appearance of. It takes the power of God and it fakes it. So it's like, start thinking about all the things you don't do that you very well would not do because the Spirit of God has transformed and changed. And it says, oh, yeah, you're not, you're not acting the way we want, so we're going to legislate some morality. And we do that as a nation. We do this as a church. Right? People say, stop doing these things. And we guilt, and we guilt, and we guilt, and we put shame, and we put law, and we put legislation, and people then chafe underneath it. And we're like, why? It's, it's the power of God. Except it wasn't the power of God. It was the appearance of the power of God. The power of God transforms us. It takes old things, and puts them away, and it brings new things. It takes death, and it brings life, and it brings hope, and it brings transformation. Right? The gospel is not a gospel of guilt or shame. It is a gospel of hope and of good news that the work is done. You couldn't save yourself and you can't add to it. Jesus has done it. Let's rejoice in it because He is sufficient. Right? That's what Paul, he's saying. Jesus is sufficient. Please don't go enslave yourself again. Please don't go to the taskmaster of religion again. Jesus is sufficient. Our attempts to rescue ourselves are futile. And they can fool others, but they will not fool God, and they will not fool you forever. Jesus took our flesh. So our ability to be severe to our flesh adds nothing to His sacrifice on our behalf. His flesh was beaten, crushed, humiliated, 
stripped, killed on your behalf, your attempts to be moral don't add to that. He has given us the Spirit. He has given us hope and peace and new life. And has taken us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. Without a taskmaster, but a good God who is leading us and guiding us. has made us a new creation. So church, hear me say this this morning. You are free to abstain from anything you want to abstain from. That is not, it's not sinful, right? Like You're free to abstain from certain food, from certain holidays, from certain drinks. Those things, you're free to do that. What you're not free to do is to impose it upon someone else as a means right, of godliness. Right? You are free in Christ to abstain from whatever you want. But as soon as you begin to impose that on someone else, you have removed yourself from the head. And you're walking away from Jesus, not closer to Him. You may find the celebration of the festivals and the feasts and those type of things is super beneficial and helpful. And guess what? You have the freedom to do that. You have the freedom to go back and look at the first fruits and the Sabbath and, and the Day of Atonement and Passover and do all of those things. They are rich and they are meaningful and they are beneficial and you can celebrate them, but do not forget that too much gazing at the shadow can take your eyes off of Jesus. So let the looking at the shadow point you to Jesus and the bigness and the sufficiency that He is and celebrate it. Listen to how Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right? You could read that. Neither the festivals or the lack of festivals. Neither the Sabbath or the lack of Sabbath. Neither the new moon or the lack of new moon. Neither food and drink or the lack of food and drink or anything. But Jesus is a, made us a new creation. And He is the end-all and be-all. And He is sufficient. Right? So that's why Paul has laid this out for them. Don't be re-enslaved. God is pleased due to Jesus, not due to your efforts. We then walk in obedience because we've been made His, not to gain His favor and attention. And then He leaves this as a cliffhanger, right? Because you're going, this feels a little negative. So as we go into chapter 3 next week, it goes into, so, that, so what should we do? Right? Like, how do we think? How do we act? How do we respond? He goes there, but we're going to stop for this week. Okay? So, cliffhanger. Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. Would we repent of our attempts to control our own religious behavior and favor in the eyes of God this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that, that we would find even offense in the Gospel this morning to be reminded and to see the areas where we're attempting to hold on to our own salvation, where we're attempting to hold on to our own morality, where we're attempting to hold on um, to superiority, or just the ability to, to own something. God, this morning, would the Gospel be good news to those who do not know You? Would they finally feel freedom and relief to hear You calling their name and to making them sons and daughters of the King 
by your life, your death, your resurrection, by your faithfulness. God, for those of us who know you this morning, would we be reminded that even in our walk of obedience, we're simply proving that you transform and that you change and that you've done the work, that we have no reason to beat our chest. So God, things that we're holding on to this morning, would we release them? Would we let go of them? And see that you are sufficient for the believer and for the unbeliever. That you are all that we need. God, give us eyes to see in our minds and our hearts and our hands where we're holding on to things in an improper fashion. God, that we would be people who love your word because it connects us to you, not because it curries favor with you. We'd be people who love your church because it's what you called us to, not because it somehow means our week will go better. God, that we would be people who would pray, not to twist your arm, but because we get to commune with the Holy One who has given us access to the throne room of grace through Jesus. God, help us to see those religious behaviors we have that are honoring to you and those that are simply a means of hiding something from you or from those around us. Lord, speak and work and move this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.